0: Well, will you pray with me one more time? Please ask the Lord to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, it is with great anticipation and great humility, Lord, that we desire to enter into this moment. Father, so many today in this pretending age approach your word with such frivolous, reckless, hasty zeal. And we know that what we hold in our hands and what we preach with our mouths, and what we sing even with our mouths and our hearts, we know that we are accountable for these things. And so, Lord, we handle Your Word with fear and trembling, as the Apostle Paul himself said. Our desire is that as Your Word goes forth here at Heritage Grace Community Church, that we will continue to equip every man, that we will continue to teach every man, that we will continue to try to present every man complete in Christ. And so we pray, God, let Your Word run swiftly among us. And so, Lord, we ask for You now to come. We ask Your Spirit to be pleased to move among us with great power and insight into Your Word. I pray that You would illuminate our hearts, Lord, to the glory of our calling. That You would illuminate our hearts, that You would show the eyes of our heart how great our calling is and what Your inheritance is in the saints. Show us, Lord, our privileged position in Christ. We pray you be magnified as we look now to another example of faith so that our own faith for our own lives and our own walk would be strengthened and that we too, like Moses, could possess a faith that is fearless. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And I echo the words there of Hebrews Chapter 12 and what God was doing among this church in preparing them to endure even to the end is that what God was doing is He was taking the church through discipline, not corrective discipline, not discipline in the sense of church discipline, but discipline in the sense of formative discipline. In other words, it was that discipline for the church, for the believer, that was meant to build strength, as it were, to infuse the bones of the soul with iron. The author of Hebrews will go on to say, in preparation for our endurance, for our perseverance, as God takes us through test after test and trial after trial, we are experiencing, even in our suffering and in our persecution, we are experiencing the discipline of the Lord. And what is it for? Hebrews 12.12 tells us, Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What is that saying? What that's saying is that this church and our church, which is to say the individual members within the church, can be brought to such a place in their walk with God that they become weary. That you become... Tired, as the old hymn says, for some people the war has been quick and easy, for me it has been sore and long. And God may bring you to that point where you realize that this is a war of attrition, This is a war where you are going to be called to persevere to the end, Jesus says. That your faith would endure to the end. What does Jesus say? It is the one who endures to the end that will be saved. Therefore, what we're seeing in these examples of faith, as we look at Noah, as we look at Abel, as we look at Abraham and Sarah, as we look now at at, at the patriarchs, Joseph and Jacob and Isaac, as we look at Moses, what we're seeing is one example after another of men and women that ran the race with endurance in the hope that you will awaken to the reality that these men and women are meant to surround you As a cloud of witnesses, as it were, these great hall of faith people are now your Colosseum audience. And they are watching you, as it were, in the, in the stage of life to see will you run the race with endurance? Will you lay aside every encumbrance and hindrance and the sin? that so easily entangles you so that you can run the race. I love this chapter. This chapter is all about a call to run. Run! Don't stroll. Christianity, as you may have learned by now, is not a walk in the park. It's not a stroll on a Sunday afternoon. It is war! And it is warfare. And we see... Just how serious that warfare can get in the context not only of the book. You remember, I mean, if you just go back to chapter 10, remember, what kind of Christians are we dealing with here? Well, these aren't Christians that are unaccustomed with the nature of the warfare. These are Christians that are right in the heat of the battle. What does that look like? I'll tell you what that looks like. That means some people in the congregation... Now, just think of it. Put yourself in their shoes. Just think of it. Some people in the congregation already went to jail. For the gospel and other people in the congregation already have had some of their possessions taken away from them. I tell you what, there is such a purifying, purifying element in suffering, is there not? I mean, I understand we're the American church. We got it all together. We have all our, you know, Christmas decorations in our churches. I know that we have all of our stuff. But what the persecuted church around the world has that we don't have is they have the crucible of suffering and persecution that purifies them in a way that we just, we are often unacquainted with. That's not to say that generally suffering doesn't do the same thing in our lives. It does. All suffering is purifying if you do it in a way that is glorifying the God. But all of that stresses the And emphasizes the point that what you and I need in Christianity, in our Christian walk, is we need a faith that is fearless. I I, want to just capitalize on that word fearless because you notice the way the passage starts and you notice the way the passage ends. You see that in verse 23, it says, Moses' parents were not afraid of the king's edict. Now what can the king's edict do to you? Well, I'll tell you what it could do. It would bring the house down. That's what it can do to you. It means stormtroopers at your front door knocking down your door and dragging your family away. That's what it means for disobeying the edict of the king. Look at verse 27. Now, Moses, when he left Egypt, watch, he did not fear the wrath of the king. Chariots, spears, swords, armies. And Moses was not afraid of the wrath of the king. Now, these are the these are the components that we need to look at. But to me, what that shows, and if we took verse 19, maybe as another example of when the children of Israel crossed across the Red Sea, is another example of a fearless act of faith. I mean, imagine you're walking through the ocean on dry land with water, it says, heaped up on either side. It could take a little courage to walk through there it would be like, you first. I know God's powerful, but let's see if this works. Yeah, yeah. God put His people in a place where they were constantly tested to fear Him more than man. What happened in Acts chapter 5? Same thing. The apostles are being threatened. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. We'll throw you in jail. Just had a Brother over for Thanksgiving dinner who has to go to trial in the UK because he and a couple of his brothers in Christ were out doing evangelism. And while he was preaching, uh, somebody walked by and yelled at him while he was preaching. And he said, Allah is God. And our brother says, Allah does not exist And the cops came and took him down, pulled him to the side, gave him a citation and say, now you must appear in at at court for a hate crime, hate speech. You're going to appear at court and this that hate speech that you just uttered could cost you jail sentence. So this brother now has to go to the UK, stand before a judge to see if he's going to go to jail for saying Allah is not God. What kind of world are we living in again? A world that may demand of you before you know it to be more fearless in your faith than you think. And therefore, we had better learn the components of the fearless faith that we see right here. Because it's not just the faith of a prophet like Moses, it's also his parents. Didn't you see? Look at the text again. It says, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Because they saw that he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's eat it. What a fascinating, fascinating passage of scripture. I wanna I'm gonna I'm gonna be pulling out three points that are going to be basically the components of a fearless faith. Number one, we must be confident in God's calling. Now, why do I say God's calling? Well, What's funny is that if you look at this verse, there's a long tradition of what exactly is going on when there is a reference here for the cause of the parents hiding little baby Moses. Notice what the causal phrase is. Because they saw that he was a beautiful child. That's really interesting, isn't it? So what does that mean? If Moses' parents would have seen Moses and saw that he was an ugly child, well, just leave him alone? <laughs> I don't think so. That's not what it's saying. Matter of fact, uh, if you correlate this with Acts chapter 7, just turn there with me briefly. You see there, even in Acts chapter 7, I mean, what a marvelous passage of Scripture because there you have the apostle or you have Stephen the evangelist giving a whole biblical theology, meaning how the whole story of the Bible progresses. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 20, we have a little bit of an insight to this. It says, It was at that time that Moses was born when he was lovely in the sight of God. He was nurtured three months in his father's house. So that's a little bit of a different... Nuance there. One says the parents saw that the child was beautiful. The other text says that he was lovely in the sight of God. And so there's a long tradition of this that that, that, that somehow Moses had some sort of divine significance embedded in him. That there was something striking about the child. And it was somehow... In his looks. Maybe it was simply that the, the parents saw Moses, that he was such a beautiful child, and that they became, and I think they became overwhelmed with a sense of vocation. Vocation. Look it up in the dictionary. And look at some of the old entries of the term vocation from back when the word began being used, some of you may be pulling out Google right now. Don't surf the internet while I'm preaching, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Look it up, and some of the old English entries says that vocation was something that used to exist. It hardly doesn't exist anymore. But vocation did not mean what many of you thought in your mind when I said vocation. Some of you thought career. No, vocation originally, and when it began being used in Old English, it meant divine calling. See, people used to have a sense of divine calling on their life. It could be to anything that you felt as if providence had called you to some great task. To be a doctor, to be a lawyer, to be a father or a mother to be a Sunday school teacher, to be a teacher, to be an architect. But you thought providence, divine providence, has put upon me the necessity to pursue what I feel called to do. Well, it seems as if whatever was on Moses provoked that in his parents. This child has some sort of purpose. We can't let the king... Kill this one. We'll hide him. Put him in a basket. Hide him in your house for a few months. And then somehow we will get rid of him safely so he's not discovered. By faith they were kind of like the persecuted church. Right? They were obeying God rather than man. I love that. And we need to be ready to do that at any time. Calvin says... There was some mark of excellence upon him that was engraved upon the boy, which gave promise to something out of the ordinary for him. Isn't that glorious? Beautiful, because in Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is talking about the whole history of the people of God all the way up to Christ, he keeps talking about the promise and he even talks about the fact that Look at verse 17 if you're still there, but I can read it. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. In other words, brothers and sisters, we are not naturalists. We are not humanists either. We do not believe in this anti-supernatural evolutionary worldview that dominates Western society. That time is just sort of going on for no particular good reason. No! We believe that what is happening on the world stage is the outworking of God's redemptive promises. And I've told you that time and time again. It is not that you and I live in a world of meaningless succession of time. That's called fatalism. This idea that que sera, sera, Whatever will happen will be. No. You have meaning. Your children have purpose and meaning. And mother and father should arise every day with a sense of Swelling up within you of some great divine vocationary purpose in your life. I got to rear this child. I got to train this child. Who knows if you don't have the next John Piper in your midst, Elizabeth Elliot. Elliot. Uh, Who knows if you don't have the next John MacArthur in your? In, in the crib, in your home. Come on. Don't believe the lie that your life is just kind of ho-hum, here we go, back to the mall like everybody else, just kind of doing our thing. No. For heaven's sake, no. You and I are different. You and I, like Moses, we have a, 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 a mark of excellence on us. You know what it is? You are a child of God. You are called of God. You have the Spirit as a pledge, as an arabon, a down payment within you as a pledge that one day God is going to take you home and you have great purpose and great meaning. And I tell you what, if you wake up and you feel that way and you, know, you sense yourself to be that because Scripture tells you that you don't need any kind of feeling or emotion or you don't need nothing bubbling up inside of you, you just need to hear the Word of the Lord. That's all you need. He had a, the, the parents of Moses were confident of God's calling on the boy and their faith was manifested in a fearless manner where they knew Providence is dictating that this child will be someone and we will do whatever we have to do if we have to defy the king to do it. Second. To have a fearless faith also means that you have to be content with Christ's supremacy. Turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2 goes right along with what is going on here as an exposition of what is happening in the life of Moses. Look at what happened in the life of Of Israel, same principle. Look at this. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder, and be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, number one. And number two, here's the second evil, they have hew for themselves cisterns. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. What is the principle there? The principle there is that the people of God were not content with God. They were not satisfied with God. They were not content to have God as their all. Instead, they became adulterers, spiritual adulterers, harlots. They hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Meaning, they went and pursued other paths, other spiritualities, other deities, other lifestyles. Anything that they thought was going to satisfy them. And it did not, because God told them that they are broken cisterns, meaning it doesn't hold any water. Now, you gotta, you gotta understand the imagery of a broken cistern. In the ancient world, a cistern is a giant place. As a matter of fact, when we were in Israel, I've been there a couple of times, up to uh, Masada, where they take you up to the fortress of Masada, where the Jews, uh, shortly after, 70 A.D. in the destruction of the temple, they went up to this huge mountain refuge to hide from the Romans. And up there, in order to survive, they hewed out a giant cistern, probably the size of this room, to hold their water. And it would be as if they, the the community in Masada hewed out this, dug out this giant cistern, just like this, but there was a crack in it. And all that water came leaking out and can you imagine you're up there, your life depends on it, and you go over there and you, you open up the latch to look into the cistern to draw out water and there's nothing to draw. That's exactly what God is saying we do when we prefer something to God or rather than God. We are looking to wells that can hold no water. But... What did Moses do? Let's go back to the text. Hebrew chapter 11, Hebrews 11 beginning of verse 24. Really, verse 24 to 26, this is the, the text dealing with Moses here. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Israel or the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. What a marvelous text. Now, uh, this is so important for us. I hope you do this. What the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's following exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Paul says repeatedly, verse 6, talking about the Old Testament people of God. These things happened as an example for us. You see that? The Old Testament things happened as an example for us, so that we would not crave evil as they craved. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. Isn't that amazing? And they were written for our instruction. Verse 18, Look to the nation Israel. Isn't that amazing? So we should go to the Old Testament, to Israel, to Moses, to the life of the saints in the Old Testament, because there what we find is we find principles for our daily lives. And that's what we see right here with Moses. Three things about Moses that show us how it is And in what way did Moses become content with Christ instead of settling for broken cisterns that can hold no water? Number one, he had a right view of himself. Did you catch that? Look back at verse 24. When he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. This is incredible because understand that to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter carried with it incredible privilege. Uh, you were privy to all the the rights of a the, the the elite people, the elite society in Egypt. Matter of fact, Acts chapter seven again kind of gives us some insight into this point. It says. Acts 7 verse 22, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and he was a man of power in words and deeds. So this is why it's important to note that for Moses, he refused to be identified as the daughter, as Pharaoh's daughter's son. And what that means is that he was willing to relinquish all of the power and all of the education and all of the privileges and all of the things that he had gained as an Egyptian prince. He wasn't willing to take advantage of that. He surrendered that. He knew, this is not who I am. Oh, go back to your conversion. Think upon when you were born again, if you are born again. Haven't you ever come to the point in your faith where you had disdain for your old identity? I say disdain, brothers and sisters, because that Greek word that is used right here in Hebrews, arneomai, that Greek word actually implies a certain level of of disdain Disgust. Wow. That's amazing, right? When it says, he refused. It was a, it was a rejection. God had brought this man to a point to see who he really is. And when God brings a man, a woman to the point where you see who you really are in Christ, you have a godly disgust for who you were. And you gladly, of your own will, relinquish that identity. Oh, what does Paul say? Corinthians, look at what this godly repentance, look at what godly repentance produced in your life. He said, "What did he say? What? What? what he says, what? Uh, what indignation? What? Uh, godly repentance, and you would not expect him to say indignation. What does he say?" Indignation. It means because he was so, he was so disgusted with who he was. He was so angry. The the Corinthians were so angry that 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 sin ever had a foothold in their life. Beautiful. They loathed themselves in their sin, and that's right. Um, Moses understood this, and was willing to instead of staying in that privileged position, that favored position. He was willing to let all of that go. And He was willing to identify with the oppression of His brethren. You know, the Apostle Paul resonated with this so deeply in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. He says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, which is not good. A spectacle to the world means we have basically become an occasion of mockery. These are the apostles we're talking about. It says, Both to men and angels. We are fools for Christ's sake. You go on to Fox News or CNN. You talk about holiness. You talk about God being all satisfying. You talk about God being better than Hollywood. You talk about God being better than the higher echelon of Western civilization. You will be looked upon as a spectacle with great disdain. You will be a fool for Christ. And rightly so. He had a right view of himself, but he also had a right view of sin. Now, personally, Moses was unwilling to live a lie, but he was also willing to undergo ill treatment with the people of God. And notice that, right? Notice the context in which Moses new life was to be lived with the people of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the people. <laughs> you know, they're not famous, they're not privileged. I mean they're slaves for crying out loud. He's gonna go get down and dirty with his brethren, whatever that means. If he's gotta if he's gotta get down into the the brick pits and build build bricks, whatever it took, he was willing to identify. He renounced all of the pleasures of Egypt so that, and in doing so, he was willing to even undergo ill treatment. What a remarkable thing. What we're looking at here, I think, is what John Piper called the way of maximum joy. In other words, what is Moses doing? It's not that Moses... In the final analysis, if we really look at the text, it's not that Moses in the final analysis is saying, oh, I'm going to give up pleasure. Period. No. We make a big mistake if we think that what this text is saying is that Moses took a vow of poverty or, or Moses lived an ascetic life where he he flogged himself. No. But... In his pursuit of a superior pleasure than the pleasures of this world, Moses was willing to endure whatever he had to endure in order to obtain that pleasure. I think there's evidence of this. Look back at the text. It says he was—he chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now notice that. He had a proper view of sin because he understood sin is just temporary. It's just, it's just transient. It's just fleeting. It's passing. It's temporary. That's the worst part of sin, right? It lies to you that you will be fulfilled. And then it leaves you with nothing but death. It says, considering the reproach of Christ, watch this now, greater Riches. Oh. So Moses was looking to something pleasurable. Yes, he was. But notice, notice the nature of Moses' pursuit of pleasure. It says, for, and this is an explanatory clause, he was looking to the reward. So marvelous. With an eye of faith, he saw beyond Egypt, beyond the pleasures of this world, beyond the fleeting pleasures of sin. By faith, he saw eschatological joy that was incomparable to anything that you can find in this life. I mean, Just think about it. Just think about it. Anything in this life that can bring you any sort of joy is temporal. But by the eye of faith like Moses we can look beyond this temporal world eschatologically to the future and we can consider that we are headed for a land of pure delight. We are headed for Canaan's shore. We are headed for the kingdom of God. And so... What this did is that this gave Moses, like Piper says, the way of maximum joy. It wasn't Moses giving up joy, it was Moses pursuing joy. Piper. Now you know Piper's written on this. So I had to, listen, if you have not read John Piper's trilogy, you must. You must. You must. You must. Desiring God, the pleasures of God, future grace. Get those books under your belt, man. There must. I mean, pull out the credit card. Don't ask your wife for permission. Just go. Pastor Emilio is giving you all the license. Jump on Amazon Prime. Go! Listen to what it says. Here we see the key to triumph. Oh, this is so Piper. He says, the key is confidence that what Christ offers is better than the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses looked at the reward of God's promises. He weighed, he weighed that against the reward of unrighteousness. And he, listen now, he rested satisfied in God. With that... The power of sin was broken. He was freed to love a rebellious people for 40 years. Now, I could have stopped it at that real juicy point, satisfied with God. (laughs) But I included the whole quote because I think it's a bit of realism that we need. When it says, the power of sin was broken... And he was freed, and then you think something maybe good is coming. (laughs) He was free to love a rebellious people, a recalcitrant people. How rebellious were they? They're so rebellious, at one point Moses says, Lord, wipe them out. I'm I'm finished, just annihilate the whole nation, I'm done. They're so evil, they're so corrupt, they're so double-minded, they're so recalcitrant they're so rebellious and stiff-necked and hard-hearted. Just take them out. <laughs> but God was merciful. God was kind. This also means that Moses had a right view of persecution. What are we seeing in the life of Moses? This is what I would say to you. What we're seeing in the life of Moses is a real-life is a, a real example of, of Jesus' beatitudes. Isn't it? Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. Now that insult you, okay? maybe you're not going to get chased by a king and his chariots. Right? But, have you ever been insulted for being a Christian? Maybe you haven't. Well, maybe it's because you lack boldness. Maybe. Not always. But maybe, maybe it's because when you thought at work, at some opportunity, maybe I want to say something in this conversation, but you don't say it, maybe you should have said it. And maybe you would have got insulted for saying that, right? Maybe you should have said something at the family dinner, but instead you kind of bit your tongue and, oh, well. Maybe you should have said something to your neighbor that day when God opened up a a, a effectual door for you to share the gospel, but you didn't say it. Maybe. But Jesus says, blessed are you when you are insulted and persecuted for righteousness' sake. When people say all kinds of evil things falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward, there's Moses, for your reward is in heaven and it is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, Moses, who were before you. This is why Hebrews says, going back to Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. You see, it would be Moses throwing away his confidence if he would have said, ill treatment with the people of God or the treasures of Egypt. I choose the treasures of Egypt. As so many people do in this soul-destroying world that we live in. Forget it. It's soul suicide that we live in. And so many people look at it And say, I choose Egypt. And in doing that, they forfeit a great reward. Final thing. Moses was also convinced of God's presence. Look at the text. It says that he was looking for the reward, and then, oh boy, this could be its own section, its own little parcel here, its own little pericope, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, and this is so precious here, as seeing him who is unseen... you know pastors struggle to make sermons applicable they read books on it how to apply the bible <laughs> so that it's relevant for the church <laughs> and i say how much more relevant is this do you see god oh i've had some kooky people tell me in the history of my christianity i see god yeah he i had a lady tell me once god shows up in my living room every day talks to me Okay, well, I'll just give you over to that person. (laughs) No, we do not see God visibly. We never see a theophany of God visibly. If you're opening up a book where people are saying, I see God, others don't. I hear God while others don't. God speaks direct, directly to me. I get direct little messages from God while other people don't get that. you got to read my book if you want to hear the little secret that He told me. That's false. You could just go ahead and put that book back. Um, anyway, I, I, I won't go any further into that because it's too tempting. Because I want to focus in on this. None of us in this room... Um, the Bible says so. First Peter. Very emphatic. Doesn't need anybody's approval. It says in first Peter chapter one. Though you have not seen Christ. That's who he's talking about. You love him. And though you do not see him now. But you believe in Him and you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Peter is not asking permission to make the statement. He's saying Christians don't see Jesus right now. But you love Him. But what's the key to the text in Peter? Did you miss it? You believe in Him. By faith, Moses was allowed, was left Egypt and he did not fear the wrath of the king, but endured as seeing Him who is unseen. Remarkable. What, what's the point of it? is that by the eye of faith, outside of the theophanies of God, that's when God shows up in some manifest presence, some manifest visible, tangible way, whether audibly or through a vision or through a pillar of fire or a cloud by day or something like that or the angel of the Lord. Outside of that, which was the majority of Moses' life, that he did not see a theophany of God, he still saw God by the eye of faith. He saw him as it were. So what does this mean? He was convinced that God was with him. How are you and I going to have a fearless faith? We are going to be convinced that God is with us. He's with us. I'll never forget the testimony of, of uh, Richard Wormbrandt, voice of the martyrs. What he said was, "I was imprisoned, and for years. The worst part about prison was I'm a preacher and they didn't get me, they didn't let me preach to anybody. I was in a cell by myself and had nobody to preach to. And he says that was the worst part of the imprisonment that he didn't get to use his preaching gift. Wow. You know, this guy is a guy who was beaten and tortured for Christ. And he says the worst part of the imprison, the imprisonment was that he didn't get to preach. He says, so I preached to the angels by myself, in my cell, in the middle of a cell. He would just preach a sermon. He knew the angels were watching him. He knew supernaturally God's eye was on him. He was convinced that the presence of God was there with him in that cell. He knew just as God had assured Moses in Exodus, as he gets ready to leave Egypt, what does God tell him? He says, I will be your mouth. I will be with you. Exodus 4.12 I, even I, I will be with your mouth. Over and over. And you and I, we are given the same promise, brothers and sisters. Matthew 28 verses 19 to 20. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What does Jesus say to us? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What about something more practical? Turn to Hebrews 13, because we're right here in the letter. Hebrews 13, it doesn't get any more practical than your finances correct checkbook the wallet bank account finances the money that you depend on to live gotta make money if you're gonna eat you're gonna pay rent you're gonna pay the bills you're gonna drive a car you're gonna buy insurance especially now with Obamacare going bye-bye no free insurance for anybody but it's not free right It just everything went up anyway no nothing's free in this world (laughs) Watch this. What did he say? Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5. Make sure that you keep your character, that your character is free from the love of money. Wow. Being content with what you have. For, for he himself has said, I will never desert you nor Will I ever forsake you? That glorious. It takes courage, year after year, week after week, month after month, to trust God in our finances. I know. Bills come stacking up. I know. Things happen. Situations occur. Next thing you know, it's paycheck to paycheck, and you are by faith praying for that next mortgage payment to be paid. Right? And so God puts us in a place where we do not waver in our trust of Him. And we do not become covetous either. But instead, we have the same assurance that Moses had when he left Egypt that God, the God of His fathers, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is with us. And He will not desert us and He will not forsake us. He will help us. And therefore, we do not need to fear. What can man do to us? Fearless faith only happens when we are, when we are uh, convinced of God's calling, when we are committed to the supremacy of Jesus as the all-satisfying Savior to all sin, against all sin, over all sin, And when we are convinced that God's presence is not only with us, but brothers and sisters, God's presence is not just with us, He is for us. He's not just with us to comfort us, He's not just there to keep us company, (laughs) although that would be enough, amen? He's not just there to keep us company, He is there to help us. It is His will, it is His heart to give us the kingdom. Only by faith will we be able to access God's empowering presence in our lives in such a way that we live fearless. And we, we show in our life that sin is not all satisfying for us. Christ is all satisfying for us. We are not afraid of what man may say or may do to us. Therefore, we obey God rather than man. We speak when we are ter- when we are fearful not to speak because we're afraid of what others may say to us i pray that god will give each and every one of us in the measure you know the bible says faith can be increased did you know that because the disciples prayed lord increase our faith that's my prayer for all of us today let's pray Holy Father, we, in and of ourselves, are cowardly. We don't have courage. We don't have a fearless faith. Oftentimes, our faith wilts like Peter's. And so we pray, God, by Your grace and for Your glory, would You increase our faith and strengthen our faith so that our knees that often become feeble, or hands that become weak would be strong. Strengthened by grace, not by anything that we can do, Lord. We know that this is a, this is a walk where we are being called to depend, to trust, to rely, not on ourselves, but on your presence, on your grace. So Lord, I pray for boldness for all of us. Boldness for the men and women in our church. Boldness to speak the word boldly. Boldness to speak at work when we have opportunity. Boldness to speak to our families even when it's awkward. Boldness to speak with our neighbor even when That means we have to cross certain cultural barriers. Whatever we must do, Lord, fill us with courage, we pray. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.